Alright guys, you ready to start again? Yeah, from the beginning? Right. Yeah, let's start all over again. Uh, yeah, right from the beginning? Okay. Alright, Dirty Harry. <laughs> it's gonna be another two hours. <laughs> Stop! Sure you want the rest of it? Dirty Harry came down to earth with a splash in Hangham High, and in Dirty Harry he leapt from a bridge onto a moving bus. Not a great feat of heroism, but enough to give the insurance company a few worries. As an actor, you have genuinely done your own stunts. You did this amazing jump from the bridge in Dirty Harry. Why do you do that when there are stuntmen who are presumably paid to do so? Because we, we had the camera on the bus, and the only way to do it was to to and to see, you leap right into the camera. They're going to know who it is. Uh, it just seems like if it's a logical stunt and it isn't ridiculous, something that uh, is putting the whole company in jeopardy. Uh, why not? Ladies and gentlemen, we have come to the second last, the penultimate episode of Dirty Harry Minute. I know I've promised that for a while now. But I think the tank has finally run dry. I've found some more offcuts from our review episode of The Deadpool, and also some original notes that we made prior to starting the podcast way, way back in 2018. Um, special thanks to Luke Allen for reading out the fan fiction in this episode. And also a big, big thanks to the Hold My Popcorn podcast for letting us use some clips from their episode on Dirty Harry. Please check their podcast out if you're so inclined. They're very, very funny. And also it was nice to hear a review that doesn't bag Dirty Harry too much. I think they quite liked it. So thanks again. Hold My Popcorn Now we're hoping to put together a small episode in December for the 50th anniversary of Dirty Harry. Not sure what that will look like at the moment, but please check back in December. And look, the dream still is to do one day a Clint cast reviewing every Eastwood movie. Now there are one or two podcasts of this nature out there already, but I think we can offer something competitive and also get some very very funny and informative guest guests to discuss each movie. So we're talking maybe 2022 or 2023, but if you have a particular Clint movie you'd like to discuss that we haven't already done, that isn't already a Dirty Harry movie or sequel, um, then please contact us on Facebook or the website. So that's pretty much it until December, hopefully. Until then, get some air, hammerheads. A phone rang on the desk of Wayne Grant. Heard a high-pitched voice, he described later, which said, We've kidnapped some kids from Faraday State School 
and we want ransom. I think the kidnapper suggested there was a note at the school. Wayne Grant took this seriously, notified the police and his office. People went to the school and found that the school was empty. It's a little, tiny, one-teacher school with one room just off the Calder Highway up near Harcourt, near Bendigo. So it was a, a little country school with, that only had, I think, five pupils there that day and one teacher, a 20-year-old teacher called Mary Gibbs. Two men had apparently come to the school. When parents and police get to the school, they find a note demanding a $1 million ransom. It's kept secret from the public. Shortly after midnight, a detective down at St Kilda Crime Cars is told to go to Malvern nearby and pick up a Mr Thompson, who is indeed the Education Minister of the day, Lindsay Thompson, who later became Premier. Mr Thompson looks very serious. He's wearing a very thick, heavy overcoat. They drive to Woodend, which is a town on there called the Highway, to deliver the ransom money as demanded by the kidnappers. They put a briefcase containing $1 million in cash in the boot, then four people drive to Woodend. They get up to Woodend at about 5.30 in the morning. The drop is supposed to happen at 6. They're supposed to meet the kidnapper at 6. Mr Thompson very bravely gets out in the cold in his overcoat with the briefcase full of money, walks out, stands in front of the Woodend post office in the gloom, in the dark, waiting, waiting, waiting for the kidnapper to turn up to take the money. As it happens, other police have sat off this site, probably we would think armed police have sat off, and the kidnappers have taken fright. They didn't turn up. They may well have realised that it was a trap and that they'd be caught, so they did not turn up. So thinking about Dirty Harry and Scorpio's role, and, Andy, and particularly Andy Robinson's performance in the film, which I think, you know, is a heightened performance, but is Scorpio perfectly pitched for the film or is it too much? Like, I, I have heard complaints about the performance that Andy Robinson, you know, is like too, too much. But I feel like he, you know, he's obviously like doing it to instruction, you know, like, Don Siegel is giving him this, you know, is giving him his marching orders. And what we're doing here is we're creating this heightened reality of this world where murderers walk free. Like, of course, that's not a real world. We don't live in a world where murderers actually walk free. I mean, yes, it can, it could happen, but it's not very common. Most murderers are caught and go to prison and spend time in prison and then get out again. And then, you know, hopefully have paid their dues and can somehow pick up the pieces of their lives and get, you know, live a normal life and, and, that, and, you know, put it behind them unless they're like, you know, psychopaths. But uh, in most cases, you know, that's how it works. But, you know, this movie is, that's what, that, not what this movie is about. This movie is this cartoon reality where everything is heightened. A rooftop overlooking a church in a park and Scorpio's, looking over the park and the church, and he's ready to make his next kill after the city didn't pay up the money he wanted. This was actually a very interesting part because Lisa and I started psychoanalyzing the killer immediately. Mm -hmm. And we're like, okay, so either we were abused by a priest or we are a self-hating gay man whose first lover was a, a, a black man, perhaps? 
I mean, just super complicated. And we never got any answers, and I'm okay with that because, spoiler alert, this motherfucker gets his fucking brains blown out, and that's cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, he actually doesn't get his head shot off, but that's neither here nor there. But it was very interesting to see them try to lay, just sprinkle in, in like 1971, a little bit of context on why this, this killer might be just fucking crazy. That's kind of cool. I think it's a good point, Jen. There's so much subtext to the killer, and a lot of it just comes from the mere fact that they're in San Francisco. If this was set in Kansas City, that subtext would not be there. You know, and to build off of that, it's so refreshing that this wasn't set in Los Angeles or Manhattan for a fucking change, Mm -hmm. you know, for like a cop movie. Um, but you get all of those wonderful things that you get out of San Francisco, especially the guy that, that the, the killer is about to shoot and that wonderful purple shaw that he has on. Oh, my God. Oh, oh my God. Just I can see the velvet from here. Like, mm, touch my body. Nothing but pure silk touches this body. Like, damn. Mm. <laughs> I'm happy he didn't kill him. Yeah, that's the one I was I was happy that didn't die. I'm like, oh, don't kill this guy. He's just trying to have a coffee with his buddy. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Eat an ice cream. Yeah, oh, yeah, ice cream. cream. That's what it is. Even yeah. better. <laughs> they're just, they're just flailing around eating ice cream. You know, yeah, dead wrist out, eating yeah. that ice cream. Yeah. He is he is flinging that ice cream cone around like it's a fucking like it's a baton, you know? I mean shit, dude. This was back in the day before San Francisco, like where in broad daylight you'd get robbed by screwdriver point. Like it's a totally different town back then. Mm-hmm. But um another thing too is interesting, like going back to Scorpio, is that I mean, obviously, he's he's a serial killer, but, like, the, the term serial killer hadn't even been coined yet. It would be, like, another right. 10 years until that point. So, mm-hmm. like, they're talking about, like, his, you know, his motives or whatever. It's like, no, no, they, they like to repeat and do these same things. It's like, get, there's no profiling that had ever been established to this point yet. Yeah, so profiling was purely done in Hollywood. Yeah, so they're just kind of guessing. Point. Like, I don't know, he's like, a, he's like a convenience store robber. He's got to go to the same place over and over again. Well, you know, it's interesting that they don't – because they still give him real-life motives. Like, he wants money. It's not yeah. – like, he's a serial killer, but he's he's not motivated purely by the desire to kill things, to kill people. He's, like, still has that sort of more rational motive, which is sort of indicative of what you're saying, Max. It's not like there's that pervasive knowledge and culture that there are serial killers and they're motivated by this and – profiles and all that shit you know yeah definitely i mean like the guy's asking for cash straight up but like you know the scene that we're you know we're talking about where he's getting he's he's tempting to get ready to shoot this guy with the wonderful shaw i just can't stop talking about it the beautiful gentleman in the purple shaw walks out of frame and out of the sniper scope and the and the killer can't see him he gets really upset because he was like, that's the guy I'm going to kill. Mm-hmm. So you're still seeing it pulled back to where this guy is a legit serial killer. Does he need that fucking cash money? Hell yeah. But it doesn't mean that he can't love it while he's getting that cash money. So, Oh, yeah. No, it's it's clear that he's like he loves killing and he's definitely has that as like a it's a factor in the whole thing. But it's interesting that they didn't just make him appear like straight out serial killer like mm. Ted Bundy or. Or whatever his name is. You know? They didn't exist yet. Yeah, really? yeah. So back to so, Max's point. Yeah, they really just weren't prepared to understand that. And here's another thing, too. I guess I was just thinking as we're talking about him, if you ever read about him, they always say that he's like a psycho or a crazy person. I think even like the synopsis of this movie is like, you know, like Dirty Harry trying to like stop a psychotic killer. But he doesn't mm-hmm. really do anything psychotic. Like everything he does is planned ahead of time. Like he had the, like all the people he wanted to kill, he picked out ahead of time. 
he like as right. we'll find out later, like he stages a police brutality beating to just get mm. Callahan off his back. Like a crazy person doesn't do that. That's someone who has like no, a no. fully formed plan. <laughs> and I think he's acting like he's crazy, but he's not. Right. Or, I don't right. know. I mean, I think it's... Uh, may, he could just be eccentric. Character. Yeah. He's a very interesting character. It's so layered. It's so yeah. layered what he is. His character is sort of like a metaphor for the hippie culture turning. Mm-hmm. Because the hippie culture through the 60s was this, like, flowery, peace, love, all that shit. And in the 70s, hippie culture became, like, it kind of... The, it kind of soured because of... Yeah. Drug addiction. And it became... And- Exactly. Not about the the politics or the, like the peace and love, but more about the drugs and the just became seedy. Yeah. He looks like the people of San Francisco, but he's more like Dirty Harry, like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Like the guy is just malicious right. and vicious and loves killing people and right. will do it as long as he can. Exactly. Until Harry kills him. Meanwhile, later that morning, a good thing happens. Some people out rabbit shooting at Lancefield, which is across the hills from Woodend, come across a young, rather hungry, scared, cold schoolteacher, Mary Gibbs, and the children, all these little primary kids, walking out of the bush. And what's happened is, Mary Gibbs tells the story, they've been locked in a van, like a, a comma van, overnight, and she, being the good, strong, tough girl she was, she had big boots on, big long boots, knee boots, and she kicked the back window out of the van and got the kids out safely and walked out of the bush without the kidnappers knowing the kidnappers had gone off somewhere else. And that is how they were rescued. Basically, they rescued themselves. Meanwhile, the police are hunting the kidnappers. They've got good descriptions of the kidnappers. A former employer of one of these men says, I recognise that fellow, he's a plasterer called Robert Boland, and he recognised him, and the police soon worked out that probably the people they needed were a pair of plasterers, an older man called Robert Boland, and a young man called Edwin John Eastwood. And they soon caught this pair, and it turned out that Edwin John Eastwood, despite having had a comfortable middle-class existence as a child, I think he was the son of an engineer, I think he grew up in the bayside suburbs of Melbourne, He, uh, because of his name, Eastwood, had become infatuated with watching Clint Eastwood movies, and somehow he got the idea that he would be some sort of Dirty Harry figure, but on the other side of the law. Apparently he didn't watch the last reel of the movie, because in the movie the good guys win. Ted Eastwood, as he called himself, Ted Eastwood cooked up this plan to pull a kidnap. He'd only ever done three very small, dodgy armed robberies where he didn't even cover his face or his hands, so he wasn't a master criminal, but he did have big ambitions. He and Boland were locked up for many years, although not as many as you might think. I think Boland got 17 years and and Eastwood got 15 or something like that. History does not record what had happened to Ted Eastwood's accomplice, Robert Boland, except that he got out of jail and was never heard of again. It's thought that he was from a good family at Bendigo, He was a plasterer by trade and that he quietly went back to work and never got into trouble ever again, unlike Ted Eastwood, who loved trouble. In 1955, Smith & Wesson, in collaboration with Remington, introduced the Model 29 revolver, chambered for the brand new 44 Magnum cartridge. 
It was a beautiful gun, one of the finest revolvers ever made in America. But it was so much more powerful than anything before it that people didn't quite know what to make of the gun. That is, until the appearance on screen of San Francisco Police Inspector Harry Callahan, called dirty because of his lack of respect for safe spaces, trigger warnings, Miranda rights, or much of anything else. The Model 29, in Dirty Harry's hands, seemed nothing less than the wrath of God. The 1971 film was a hit, and one of its early scenes became iconic. Callahan breaks up a bank robbery by shooting everyone involved and their car. Then confronting a wounded robber lying on the sidewalk, he cocks the revolver, aims it at the man's head and says, But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world and would blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you? Punk? These words are now as firmly engraved in the American psyche as We hold these truths to be self-evident, blah, blah, blah. Before Dirty Harry, the Model 29 was a poor seller. People bought one, fired one cylinder of ammo, and put the gun up for sale. The Model 29 was not even in production at the time the film was slated to start filming. So Eastwood went directly to Smith & Wesson, who assembled three 29s out of spare parts on hand. The script originally called for a nickel-plated model with a 4-inch barrel. However, the only parts available were blue, and the only barrels 6.5 inches, so that's what was used. Sunny, written by Jonathan Bampton, read by Luke Allen. I thought I could do this, Sunny half laughed. She looked at the inspector for some reassurance, scanning for any emotion. You'd be better off in the mission, responded Harry, as he economically picked his words. His face was blank. She thought about what might lie behind this impassive silence. Better off for him, she decided. True. She'd never been with a cop before, but a man was a man. I can look in on you from time to time, Harry said, filling his silence with precision. There was no sign of awkwardness on his behalf. I will miss you, she said. She couldn't complete the sentence. Harry looked onto the sidewalk for any of her struggling belongings. Think you've got everything? Higher up in the cab, the removalist cleared his throat to make his displeasure at waiting known. Sunny didn't catch Harry's question. She was too busy making sure she had everything. Harry squinted back at her in the Knob Hill sun. Sure you don't need me for the final trip? No, no, I'll be okay. Sunny sighed as she took one last look at the man, the apartment block and the neighbourhood that had occupied her life for the past three months. Her mind thought back to two weeks ago. They'd just finished some Chinese takeout in his apartment. It had been a first for Harry, apparently. Probably healthier than Linguini, the inspector had teased her. She'd smiled and punched him in the shoulder just as the telephone had rang. Sonny travelled the six feet to the small apartment with their empty takeover containers. 
She'd heard the words inquiry. Harry's face bore no emotion as he engaged monosyllabically with the encaller on the other end. Sonny could faintly hear Bretton's voice on the receiver. It was something to do with the clean-up of that Briggs business. She still remembered that eventful day. All these months later, her ankle still hurt from when Harry had thrown her down by the downstairs mailbox. She'd been wearing wedges. Never again. She hadn't seen Harry for two straight days after the incident. He'd been squirreled away with internal police investigators. There had been only one or two references in the Chronicle and the Examiner. The police union had put a bit of pressure on the typesetters' union, Harry had explained. But a paper could hardly suppress news of a mailbox bomb and two motorcycle cops being pulled out from the bay. Thankfully, the explosion of Briggs's car had taken place on Pier 51, which was largely abandoned. Plumes of smoke were hard to make out from Telegraph Hill. Besides, nobody could really connect all the incidents together. The reports that tried to do so pinned the business on black militants taking out some gung-ho police officers. It all sort of dried up, at least as far as the public was concerned. Harry wasn't so lucky. He kept getting calls like these. Sonny could tell they weren't homicide-related calls. Harry didn't leave in a hurry after them. He would just sit still and think. She nodded to Harry that she'd make tracks. He nodded. She silently let herself out of the door. She muted herself in her apartment downstairs and then returned half an hour later. Harry was now sitting on the couch, staring blankly. She wouldn't push him for an answer again. She never did. They watched a dragnet rerun before retiring to bed. They'd make love a few times over the next few weeks, but it would never be the same after this particular call. He told her he'd be working robbery for a little while. He was still plain clothes and his routine was still unwavering, but something did seem different. He now talked a whole less, if that was even possible. She talked to Gerald, their neighbour, in the basement laundry for advice. Sonny, he'd smile back to her. He's a cop. File away for look, but don't touch. But I mean it. Have a nice good look. Sonny sighed. I used to like to look, and more, but I'm not sure I can. Gerald consoled her. There, there, girl. If it's over, it's over. Sonny steadied herself and tried to lower her voice for more resolution. I think so. The colourful neighbour could contain himself no longer. It is true what they say about Callahan being, you know, gifted. Sonny tossed the last sock into the clothing basket and made her leave up the stairs. Goodbye, Gerald, she said, shaking her head. She'd miss Gerald, too. Come on, shrieked the removalist. I ain't got all day. Harry extended his arm to the irritated driver. The driver, slightly intimidated, went silent. Sunny patted her dungarines down to make sure she had her wallet. She nodded to the removalist who put the motor into gear and began to move the van away from the curb. Bye, Harry. Sunny waved to the rapidly disappearing inspector. She'd promised him she wouldn't cry, and she didn't. probably go back to her own kind when she got herself set in the mission. Not a Japanese-American man to her father's eternal lament, 
but a useless fine art student studying sociology. She knew herself. It had been a nice little holiday. She saw Harry smile, softly but genuinely. Dirty Harry just doesn't have the time for romance. Sonny? Probably fizzled out. Inspector Moore? He makes it clear he doesn't get close to his partners. Sondra Locke? She's in the movie, they walk off together, but she doesn't appear in the last movie, so it couldn't have lasted that long. This is par for the course for cinema cops. If you want sex for Harry, you might want to check out Coogan's Bluff, the movie Eastwood did before uh, with Siegel. It's more of a, a Randy Harry there, bit of a, added in a bit more toxic masculine behaviour. Yeah, it's a western sheriff comes to the big bad city, surprise, surprise, his techniques don't work. And, you know, the therapist there blames Coogan for being too hard on adolescent criminals. It's liberal prep. It's like liberal bait, but it's a proto-Dirty Harry that you might like. It's funny that two TV series were turned out of Siegel films, in a way. You know, um, McLeod with um, that guy from... The guy from Touch of Evil and uh, Jewel uh, was a TV show pretty much based on on Coogan's Bluff and then Madigan a film by Siegel with Richard Skidmark became a TV series for a time as well Little ditty about Chico and Harry Two San Francisco's messing with hot and airy Chico even had a teaching credentials Thought he could rough it with Harry Man, was he mental Sucking on a jumbo dog outside Quick lunch, a lunatic with a cannon Following his own personal hunch Two cops on the beat One of them's crazy The other's got cold feet Oh yeah, life goes on Long after the thrill of catching Scorpio is gone Thought he had what it takes, man, was she wrong? Hello, this is Sean German from Next Scene Podcast, here to help bid farewell to Dirty Harry and Dirty Harry Minute. I just want to start by thanking Jay and all the hosts and guests of, of Dirty Harry Minute for a very exciting ride and very educational and entertaining look back on this classic of cinema. And looking back, I wonder, what have we learned? What have we learned about ourselves, about society, about Dirty Harry? Is, uh, you know, is Dirty Harry a, a cautionary tale against misogyny and homophobia and violence and, and toxic masculinity? Or is it a, a celebration of it? And I think what we've learned is that Dirty Harry, the character and the film are, are very misunderstood and maybe a little bit more understood thanks to the wonderful podcast. I think we, I think what we see from this series is that it starts out as a cautionary tale that Dirty Harry is someone perhaps we're supposed to like as the protagonist of the film, but we're not necessarily supposed to agree with. We're not necessarily supposed to be on his side, sort of like um, Archie Bunker of All in the Family that, uh, you know, 
we should enjoy watching Archie. We should uh, even like him, perhaps, but we shouldn't agree with his with his old way of thinking. Um, it was an old way of thinking back in the 70s for All in the Family and for Dirty Harry. And it's certainly even older now that we are in uh, the, the 2020s. And I think we we can see this throughout. I think this is reflected throughout the series of Dirty Harry films. Um, looking, for example, at Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb, for every one of the five films in the series, the ratings go down. And this is strictly true from uh, just looking at the uh, rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Dirty Harry from 1971 starts at 89%. Magnum Force, then 72%. We're down to 68% by the time we get to The Enforcer in 76. Uh, 57 for Sudden Impact. And then Deadpool from 1988 is at 55%. So it's just barely over that middle line, just a little bit in the positive range. And I think part of this is due to the fact, uh, you know, maybe some changing tastes in the audience, but also um, because of uh, discontinuity in the personnel involved. All five films, we've got different writers and different directors. Harry uh, is really the only character that carries through all five films. Uh, Frank DiGiorgio, as played by John Mitchum, appears in the first three. Um, Al Bresler, as played by Harry Gardino, uh, appears in the first and comes back for the third. But it's basically five distinct films that just happen to have this single protagonist in Harry in common. And I think uh, I think they lose sight of uh, that lesson of the first film that we can we can enjoy Harry, we can even like him, but we're not supposed to be like him. We're not supposed to see him as a hero. And if we, you know, only in as much as he is perhaps to, to force to cross the line for the greater good force to do things that he would choose not to. Uh, so I think those later films maybe begin to uh, celebrate those things that the first film is warning us about. And I think uh, I think Jay and, and the series have demonstrated that, that there is more to Dirty Harry as a character and Dirty Harry as a film than just, um, you know, the lone renegade cop kind of shooting up crime, playing by his own rules, that there's a there's a deeper message there. And so I, I think, Jay, I think uh, the opportunity to listen to Dirty Harry Minute to enjoy a new perspective on this classic film and I especially am thankful for a chance to participate as a guest to be part of, of that process. So farewell. We enjoyed it. It was a good year. Uh, once again, I am Sean German. If you'd like to hear more from me, I'm on the Next Scene Podcast at nextscenepod.com and Next Scene Pod on social media. And all my podcasting links, including my guest spots, are at catandshawn.org. That's C-A-T and S-E-A-N dot org. And that links to my minutes with Dirty Harry, as well as all my other podcasts that are out there. So thank you, listener. And thank you, Dirty Harry. And the first movie, it's, it's not really a cop action movie. It's a cop thriller. There's, most of it takes place at night. There's a lot of spooky music and stuff. And, and then by the second one, it's pretty much cop action. Up, and then by sudden impact, they try to maybe... They try to cap recapture what the you know the dirty hairy stuff again. Most of it is at night, 
And it's uh, more like a Death Wish movie. It's more like it. Well, there's moody lighting and stuff. Like the movie, Sudden Impact, kind of, kind of is is probably one of the flashier of all the films in the series. Like they have all these split diopters. They really try to like make the movie look interesting. Yeah, it's Bruce Surtees uh, shot that one. And then Deadpool's just kind of shot almost uninterestingly at all. It's, it just doesn't feel like a... Well, it looks like a Fox movie of the week, which was my impression when I saw it back in 88. I was like, that's like Dirty Harry, the you know the TV series or the TV movie. Yeah, could have been a nice TV pilot. Feels very rushed, everything about it. Just nothing Nothing feels thought out. It fe- The script feels like a first draft. Yeah. yeah. Um, Good premise, but... Just not nothing really. Good premise, good ideas. Uh, I like the way the movie treats Harry as a celebrity, uh, but they just don't do enough with it, and what they do do with it is not all that great. And the vil- the villain sucks. That's the big the villain yeah. is shit. Absolutely. Yeah. Like that it was something that like another that. rewrite could have fixed. I think. Yeah, it, it should have really been somebody that we had already seen a, a bunch of times in the film. I think that would have helped it. But for it to be some rando at the end of the movie, it. Uh... Oh, it's this guy who wrote me crazy letters. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah, it, it felt. My secretary th- saved them. One thing about this movie is I think Harry invented cancel culture. <laughs> he says to Gennaro, I'm going to cancel your ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that... <laughs> Even the Lalo Schifrin score is like lightweight junk, you know? It's like George S. Clinton remixed at the uh, in-house composer at Canon. Yeah, 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 absolutely. There's some slight nods to the first one, like uh, the guy that uh, the guy who's threatening to commit suicide by fire, lighting himself up. Like it, that's pretty much mirrored by the first movie mm-hmm. with uh, the guy who's going to jump off the building. Yeah. <laughs> you know, John Milius said he had a treatment for a final Dirty Harry movie that would have uh, Harry retired and teaching criminal law up in Seattle. And then some murders start up that are, I think he implied the murders would be similar to the Scorpio killings. Like they were, um, you know, copycat killings and they brought in Harry to consult. And that's, a, that's all he, he gave away. Mm. That's not a bad idea. As long as the villain doesn't turn out to be the son of Scorpio. Right, right. <laughs> son of Scorpio. Or this guy who was starting a Scorpio fanzine, Scorpio Killings or something, or website. It's, uh, it turns out it's Robert Graysmith. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to write another Zodiac book, Scorpio. Right. <laughs> you know, if Clint Eastwood wore paisley pajamas like Steve McQueen did in Bullet, then everybody would have drooled over Harry Callahan, but no. Newman's uh, Queen McQueen is exempt. You know he's all he's cool. He's not problematic. So during all this <laughs> running, we were talking about before the show how dark, like literally dark, this movie is. I couldn't see mm. fucking shit. This entire ten yeah. minutes of him running around the park, like I had one light on in our house. I had to turn that off. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Like I, I can't see anything. I can see a little bit of his like maroon sweat vest that he's wearing under his sports coat, but besides that, nothing. I'm really yeah. happy that you brought that up because I was I, I got really pissed off thinking that because I have been battling with my new TV for weeks trying to get it to the perfect, perfect, like all situational, you know, It'll like brightness, happen. contrast, all this bullshit. I got it to work. And then this happened. And I'm like, the fuck? I started adjusting my brightness on my on my uh, <laughs> on my TV during this. I'm like, no, nope, no, nope, it's just OK. It's just the movie. All right. 
Hi there, it's Evelyn. You might remember me from some episodes of Dirty Harry Minute, such as Pashmere and Ice Cream and the more recent Dirty Harry Debate. I'm pretty sure the only reason Bamp didn't ask me to be on this podcast was because, one, I was Redmond's sister, two, they needed more female voices, and three, I used to work at JB Hi-Fi as a DVD manager, so I know a lot about movies and film, pop culture and trivia. I'm very good at trivia. You definitely want me on your trivia team. We will not lose. Would Harry work better in a small town? Um, maybe. I don't know. Like, small town, revenge, cop. It feels like one of those Swedish crime thrillers, you know, where girl gets murdered, you know, small town cops have to solve the murder, go vigilante solving it. It's like I could be watching Fargo, I could be watching Twin Peaks, I could be watching any UK or Swedish crime thriller ever made. Also, if they did a remake, which contemporary actress would play Harry? I really feel for that question that Charlie's Theron obviously would be my first choice and then Scarlett Johansson. Um, I just feel like they could carry the grumpy man Clint Eastwood vibes into the new film. I really actually don't think they could make a film like Jodie Harry in this day and age. I think if they were to make anything like it, it would have to address a lot of the issues that are coming up at the moment, especially in America with the systemic racism in the police force and obviously um, look at Black Lives Matter and it had to be filmed in that context. I don't really want to reflect too much on everything. I feel like it's a topic that a lot has been said about and I'm not an authority on the topic, so I don't believe I should speak too much about it. But I do believe that cop movies about cops taking heavy-handed approaches um, are probably not going to be popular for the next few years. I, I just don't see them being popular at all, considering what's going on in America at the moment. Um the other question, would Robocop beat Dirty Harry? Now, I think this is a really interesting, complex question, um, but it has a really simple answer. And the answer is yes. Robocop is a robot and he's literally designed to serve, protect and kill. So, I mean, Harry would probably put up a really good fight, but I think Robocop would beat him in a fight. Soz. All that was happening through, like, the very classic Dirty Harry soundtrack, which is just a lot of, like, do 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 Yes. So, um, everybody, I need you to understand that the first 15 minutes of this movie are the opening credits with the same track played on repeat of Dirty Harry just walking around looking at shit. Just yep. just looking at shit. Just, oh, that's great. Oh, wow. Well, okay. And then, yeah, gets on top of this building, finds the note, finds the bullet. You know what? But he's a good enough cop to where he picks up the bullet with a pen. And that's how I knew he meant business. Mm. Mm-hmm. I got two things here. First of all, I want I want that music to follow me just in life when I'm just doing like mundane yeah. things, just to make oh, everything. Just, it'll just make you feel like you got a purpose in life when you're just like vacuuming. <laughs> you know, I want to be in the grocery store 
with that music following me when everyone else can hear it. And <laughs> I want to be stupid on my dog shit in like, and have that music yeah. playing. No, it's it, it, the whole Tim. movie is nothing but like one giant snare drum where I feel like I'm like trying out for the band. That's stressful. I don't need that following me around. Give me a fucking I'm tuba band it. any day. Should there have been a movie where a judge, maybe a left-leaning one, was kidnapped and Harry had to save him? I guess that would could be interesting. I don't think that's a movie, though. That's a that's a part of a movie. I think you'd have to build build it up more than that. If you're gonna do that movie, what you'd have to do is have um, say say there's a court case going on, and this guy has been hired to like to like stop this trial from going forward. So by whoever's on trial. And this guy, but this guy is just like a, he doesn't know it, but this guy is just like a crazy psych sociopath. So he just starts like killing the jury. So you just like, and at first if, you know, they don't realize what's happening, like, cause they're like, there's that set to look like accents or whatever. But as the guy gets more and more unhinged, the murders get more, start getting worse and worse. And they start to realize, oh, well, almost right away they realize, but they, they're just having trouble like keeping everyone safe because this guy is so inventive and, and can, you know, kind of, that's kind of like a John Malkovich from In the Line of Fire kind of thing. And he, um, you know, so he's killing the, the, he kills all the jury and he, and he finally gets to the, to the judge and kidnap the judge. And then Harry, you know, is finally on to him. I think, you know, you almost end up in a kind of a Deadpool situation if you wanted to make a movie like that, where you'd have a killer who was uh, targeting individuals. And then we end up with a judge who's been, you know, uh, obstreperous throughout the, you know, keep constantly like, you know, creating situations where they can't stop this person because of all these sort of problem problems with like rights and you know like uh case law and stuff you know and we'll get all you know or get our knickers in a twist about you know the the justice system and how it's broken but um i don't think you could make a whole movie about that i think that i think you've described a, a sequence but not a not a movie what would you call that movie you'd call that movie judge during executioner that's the only name you could give it let's go straight into uh favorite least favorite character Favorite's going to be Harry or Scorpio, one or the other. It's going to be a combo, probably. And then my least favorite is going to be the liquor store clerk. You got what was coming to you, dude. A good choice. Don't give, don't give a fucking wife beater a high five for beating his wife. Yeah. yeah. You do that, yeah. and then you're going to get fucking pistol whipped and all your shit stolen. No wonder why yeah. you've had like six break-ins in the last month, you piece of yeah. shit. They're all by his ex-wife who used to be. <laughs> And in the nearby town of Carmel, he's often to be found at the restaurant he owns. It's called the Hog's Breath Inn. You know, it looks kind of like a British pub to me. And <laughs> it, I used to love the names they put on pubs over there. I thought it was uh, had terrific atmosphere, so I just figured we'd get a name that was a little more outrageous than some of the names they used. The menu reminds his customers of some of their hosts' better-known films, like Dirty Harry and Fistful of Dollars. That was all uh, by a former partner. He uh, was a, a sort of a PR-oriented type guy, and he he, he thought up all these things, a Dirty Harry dinner or something like that. I was a little bit uh, reticent about but uh, nobody seems to have objected to it. So. And he says, I'm going to wait till the cavalry arrives.
which is him. <laughs> and then yeah. takes a big mouthful of that hot dog and then immediately goes, shit. Once he sees right. that the bank is actually fucking being robbed. Also, like, that is the longest hot dog that has ever been served in San Francisco. Does that only go when you have a forty four Magnum in your pocket that you need to have <laughs> a hot dog that's as long as your fucking gun? I'm just sad that they didn't make any gay jokes. They got close, and this was definitely a weird foray into like, oh, a conservative man living in a liberal city who still is tolerant at the same time, but doesn't take any shit. He hates everybody equally, you know? By Norma Gonzalez, though we never knew you at all, you pulled off that lime green jacket against the exposed brick wall. Your anxiety was real, it whispered in Into your brain, your religious family Angry Chico made you change your name But it seems to me, Chico did you proud At Mount Davidson Croft Never knowing who his partner was If he gave a toss You'd have liked to have slept with Harry But you were too afraid You married Chico Chico. In his bed you must lay In his bed you must lay And look, I thought I might make this a bit interesting. Maybe we deep dive a little bit into Scorpio. Um, I've been spending a lot of time on Instagram looking at astrology memes. I'm an Aries, which makes me a fire sign, which if you know Aries, you know that we're incredibly charismatic, loyal, smart, amazing people. But did you know that Scorpio, now if Scorpio the actual villain is actually a Scorpio. That is the eighth astrology sign. It's actually a water element. Now, who would have thought that? A water element. Pisces are also water elements. So, and water elements are traditionally thought of as like emotive, um, empathetic, and sensitive types. Um, But you wouldn't classify Scorpio as that at all. Um, Interesting facts about Scorpio, you know, It's associated with snakes, eagles, or maybe the phoenix. I don't think Scorpio as a villain is much of, you know, the burst into fire and then be reborn type. I think he's more of the snake type, obviously. If you've seen the movie, which if you've listened to this podcast, I bloody well hope you have, you'll know that he's very snake-like. Scorpio is also really dramatic, which makes sense because he keeps sending notes to the San Francisco Police Department about murdering young girls and wanting $100,000. Also, he's not being very ambitious for a Scorpio, which is very strange. Apparently, Scorpios are really um, ambitious and, like, when they set goals, they are very, like, firm on following that through. So they're very vigorous and possessive with their clear goals in life. Um, And they like to pay attention to personal privacy and are really, really revenge-minded. So if you cross the Scorpio, look out, bitch, you're going to get cut. Um, They will revenge against people who have wronged them desperately, Um, which is kind of a little bit crazy, but 
if when I tell you about some famous Scorpios, maybe this makes sense. You know, Bill Gates, he's Scorpio. Yep, yep, was really competitive with Microsoft back in the day. Leonardo DiCaprio, Dinosaur Bones, he is a Scorpio, very ambitious actor. Um, and Anne Hathaway, which I thought was a bit fun. And Julia Roberts, all Scorpios. Um, interesting enough, uh, so often when they talk about astrology, they talk about the planets that rule that sign. And Scorpios are ruled by Pluto, but their detriment planet is Venus. So do with that knowledge what you will. I thought that was kind of a little bit funny because Venus, obviously quite feminine. Scorpio hates women. Joining the dots here, guys. I'm joining the dots. Um, and yeah, I think that's all I've got to say on that subject. I can write another wrong, but hey, what's the point? And you may make clap as he lights another joint. I can barely now remember my wife. My police work is all I got. I don't have a life. Harry's had enough. Harry's had enough. Harry's had enough. Harry's had enough. What should my priorities be? Hang the magnum up, read the rights. I just don't give a fuck. Wanna get under the hood skin? Miranda rights never gonna get that going. Harry's had enough. Harry's Golden Gate Killer found Harry's out it was a one-time enough. cop. Harry's Maybe Harry is a murderer and too. And the shots and magnum fights. Lot of darkness, voyeuristic action goes down at night. Gratuitous news. Me too, prudes. Laughing that hot dogs are my only food. Can't be fuck setting up. I know that there is a belief among fans that some stuff was taken from the Dirty Harry action novels that Warner Books released in the late 70s, early 80s. And um, other than an action scene in Chinatown, I've read most of those, and I don't, I don't recall anything else. They probably should have stolen a lot more from those paperbacks. Yeah, they probably would have gotten a better movie, right? It, definitely, because I mean, just thinking about it, it's like there should have been like they should have been at the Hollywood Wax Museum that's in that was in San Francisco back then, or one of those things, and have Harry having a shootout and with the villain. You know, around wax dummies or some, or there's a there's a dirty hairy wax figure. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that would have been hilarious. Local San Francisco celebrities, but it's like, where's uh Harry the the ethnic slur Harry or you know Harry uh, just being rude to people? It's just not really there. It really okay. feels like you could change his name to something else, and it would just be a generic Clint Eastwood action movie. He, he isn't angry, really. Mildly annoyed. He hasn't been that placid since probably Magnum Force, which is he's actually not very angry in that either. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's weird. It doesn't even feel like the same character. If I could have one more scene of this movie, The Deadpool, my favorite parts of this movie are when Liam Neeson and Clint Eastwood are together. And I think I think Dave mentioned this when when the three of us, when John and Dave and I discussed that movie, that there should have been a scene perhaps where Callahan had to protect uh, Liam Neeson, uh, and and I think that could have been a fun scene. So I'm definitely I would definitely want to see more Liam Neeson, uh, Harry Callahan, you know, Clint Eastwood playing off each other. 
Dirty Harry by Philip Rock I've dealt with psychotics and sociopaths all my life. They love patterns and routines. They hate anything to go wrong or out of sequence. I've known them to rob the same store six times in a row. I've seen them try to pull a hold up when there were cops crawling all over the place simply because they had planned to pull the job that day. They don't give a damn. It makes them feel audacious. They like that feeling. The following is some dialogue from the 1952 film The Sniper, about a San Francisco delivery man who goes around shooting women with a rifle from atop buildings. It's a great, great film, with lots of good exterior shots around Telegraph Hill. It has the killer write letters to the police, not asking for ransom like Scorpio does, but imploring the police to help him stop his wicked ways, and the police turn their minds to some criminal profiling, which was very in its infancy at the time. Have a listen to some of the dialogue. Sexual crimes run to a pattern, and they don't overlap. You've got an armed robbery? Then don't waste time rounding up pickpockets. It's the same with sex offenders. Peeping toms don't kill people, they stick to peeping. Rapists don't write poison pen letters either. Obscene letter writers don't commit rape. Sexual offenders stay in their own grooves, Look for someone who's been getting tough with woman from the very beginning. Maybe he started small, slugging them in a dark street. Whatever. A crime of violence first. Harry is a little like Qui-Gon Jinn, played by Liam Neeson in The Phantom Menace. He has great self-confidence, and if he entertains any doubts, he certainly doesn't display them even to his closest friends. Qui-Gon Jinn trusts in the Force, or his intuition. He trusts in it completely, not the rules laid down by the Jedi Council, or if you like, the Supreme Court, in Harry's version. And like Harry, Qui-Gon Jinn is not just a little dismissive of his protege Obi-Wan, like Harry is of Chico. And lastly, Qui-Gon Jinn eats Dexter Jetster's space dogs with Kessel sauce. Hmm? Hmm? What a parallel. Is that why um, the director's rat tail kept changing its, its uh, length? It's because they would mix it up with the one that this character was wearing? His seems a lot longer than than swans. And then the second assistant director has, what a name, Tena Psyche Yatrusis. That's pretty, pretty cool. Now, there are a few links in this movie to the first Diddy Harry. Um, there's Harry's back to perving at the gym and at Patricia Clarkson's ankles, her slippers. <laughs> Harry's back again to no real investigation in Magnum Force, the, it's the high water point. He actually studied ballistics 
and I suppose you could say in the Enforcer, he's still investigating Leeds and Bobby Maxwell, and he he finds out that they have a, a hideout on Alcatraz. Sudden Impact, I can't really recall, but he works out that it's Sandra Locke at least, and somehow finds out where she is on the boardwalk at the end. He must have asked someone. <laughs> and yeah, but in this movie, the Deadpool, you know, we've got a, a hero shot of Harry going to the killer's apartment, but pretty much Quan works it all out. It's like that. Have you seen Cobra? Uh, Sylvester Stallone's Cobra? Yeah. A long, long time ago. It's like this. It's like a cop movie with vague horror elements. And it's just a vague villain almost added in as an afterthought. And it ends ends at a warehouse as well. I think this was like during the great horror scare. When everyone was mad because of movies like Friday the 13th and... You know, this, is that the, different from the video nasties thing in England? Is that what you mean? I think that they were, had different names. Like we'd never call anything video nasties in in North America. That's just too weird. Oh, maybe you'll get lucky. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> maybe you'll get lucky. Like a nod to the line. Well, yeah. And also the uh, bad woman in uh, Sudden Impact said it. Maybe you'll get lucky. <laughs> Interesting film set in the background. Is this some sort of? Is this where they filmed Help or something? <laughs> <laughs> it looks more like it's like storage for uh for like the the parades, like uh, the Chinatown parades and stuff like that. Maybe that's what it's supposed right. to be. Right. He's destroying more cameras. It, it actually is just like a studio stuff. Like it's supposed to be Swan Studio. You know, San Francisco being like the center of of, of filmmaking in uh, California, well known. Maybe Peter, uh, Swan is actually a uh, partly a a parody of like um, a Francis uh, Francis Ford Coppola, the idea of uh, this San Francisco-based filmmaker, because there is no other San Francisco-based filmmaker except for, except for Francis Ford Coppola. So it's kind of a curious idea that this is like a parody of American zoetrope, and I guess Coppola, alternate universe Coppola, that he never like advanced beyond doing uh, cheapy horror films for for American International. And Roger Corman, and now he's like, that's this his whole career. Sunset of life, I'm swinging to the right. Waiting for the Francisco night to come and smother me. And mess across the land, look at your hands. Never done a day's work in your life Forget elections, what about protection of society? Sunset of life, I'm swinging to the right I know that L's no longer on my side Roughing up strangers shoots society's dangers Don't need a silver stop into my chest I lost my wife But the silent majority knows I did my best I did my best Personnel's for assholes Maybe I should look at myself in a different light 
Harry Callahan can never see past his anger or his paranoia or his disappointment at the people that lead his department, his betters, his supposed superiors. You know, even his colleagues get contempt, probably talking instead of looking. You can't even trust the flatfoots. They've gone all soft as well. Dirty Harry is an awesome action movie. Plus, it's also thought-provoking, because there's no easy answers. The legal system doesn't work for Anne-Mary Deacon, but nor does vigilantism either. Harry's trying to protect his uh, average, his citizens, but of course he doesn't even particularly like the people he's sworn his life to protecting. He wants to cast a net over most of them. And... Within five years, Eastwood escapes from Geelong Prison. In February 1977, big escape news, I remember this clearly happening, Edwin John Eastwood, dastardly kidnapper, escapes from Geelong Prison. It was a very old bluestone jail in the middle of Geelong and not terribly secure. And he's on the run. And it's the biggest manhunt in Australia since probably Ned Kelly. It was huge. Nobody knows where he's gone. No one knows what he's doing. And then... An entire school is kidnapped in South Gippsland. This time, a young male teacher, nine children, and eventually seven adults. Because this time, Edward John Eastwood has decided that everybody he comes across, he would take hostage. So he changed the young teacher and the kids together in the back of a vehicle, and he's driving along, and then he finds two elderly women in a combi van. He bails them up takes their combi van and takes them hostage as well, changes them up to the kids in the back of the combi van, drives along and then he finds two log trucks pulled up, one broken down, and he he kidnaps the two drivers and puts them in the back chained up. So he's got this entire group of people all chained together and he goes to a hidey hole in the bush and it's very cold and one of the log truck drivers, and he knew that if you twist a link in a chain, it creates a little bit of space. It feels tight, but there's actually space there that you can create by untwisting the link. And what he said to the kidnapper, is, he said, mate, I've got to go and relieve myself over away from the kids. Can you let me off for a minute and that'll be good? So the kidnapper unlocks him, lets him go over behind a tree, and when he comes back, the kidnapper locks him up again. But the very clever truck driver has twisted the chain so that there's that little bit of space to be had after the padlock goes on. And after the kidnapper goes off and lies down, our truck driver unwinds the chain a little bit and gets just a fraction of space. It's not really enough space to pull his hand out comfortably, but he drags his hand through and crushes his thumb. He actually smashed all the joint in his thumb getting it out. And once he could get it out, he could get the other one out and then... He was able to crawl away from the campsite. This is just before dawn. He runs all the way down out of the bush and down to the closest farm. You realise it's dawn's just breaking. It's really early. He knocks on the door of the farmhouse. Luckily, the farmer's daughter is visiting and she's seen the news the night before and said, oh, there's been a kidnap. There's been a kidnap of this school yesterday. This guy could be real. He could be genuine when he's calling out that he's been kidnapped. So they let him in. They ring the police. The police come. They give another farmer a rifle and they take our truck driver, Rob, and they drive out 
into the bush to look for the uh, kidnapper and the combi van full of chained up people. And as they drive into the bush, out comes the combi van flat out, driving straight for them. They have to drive off the track to avoid a collision. Then they have to reverse around and follow the combi van along the road. Now you can imagine how dangerous it is. You've got a combi van which is very unroadworthy, it's quite high, a high centre of gravity. It is absolutely jammed full of people, all chained together. This combi van gets onto the South Gippsland Highway, heading towards Sale. The police realise that it's going to have to go over a thing called the Swing Bridge. The Swing Bridge is a, a bridge that's set at an angle to the highway, and you have to slow down to go over it, and it would be very dangerous to try and drive over it at speed in a combi van because you would roll the combi van into the river and drown everybody. They radio ahead. The police have got the police radio. They radio ahead to other police and luckily, one of the ones ahead who's near Sale is the sergeant from Rosedale. And Rosedale is a little town near Sale. And this sergeant is called Bob King. And I actually used to know this fellow, Bob King. He was a laconic, quiet man who happened to be one of the best shots in Australia. He was a champion rifle shot in the target shooting. He routinely, as they could do in those days, and probably illegally, carried a high-powered rifle in his police car at all times because he was a one-man station. Bob King, the best shot in the police force probably, gets to the river crossing first where the combi has to cross the river and he shoots out the tyres. Then another policeman with him ran up to the combi with a pistol drawn and dragged the um, driver out who was, of course, Ted Eastwood. There was an altercation in which Eastwood was shot in the leg. So Edward John Eastwood was a two-time loser. He's been caught twice kidnapping entire schools. On the second occasion, he wanted an unbelievable number of things. He wanted kilos of cocaine and heroin. He wanted millions of dollars. He wanted plane tickets to Ecuador or somewhere or to South America. And he wanted plane tickets, plural, to get some of his mates out of jail. So he was... And nothing if not someone who aimed high. Anyway, he went to jail, to Pentridge, and he became quite a notorious and divisive figure among the jail population because he was probably a very narcissistic person. And at one point, he killed a fellow prisoner called Glenn Davies, beat it on self-defence. Eastwood was eventually released in 1990, which doesn't seem a long time given the gravity of the crimes he had committed. He, by this time, claimed to be a born-again Christian. It's amazing how many violent men find religion in jail and lose it immediately when they get out. Ten weeks later, he was back in jail, this time for planning to burgle a drug factory to provide chemicals for speed dealers, as you would. He released a book, but it was withdrawn from sale when it was found that it might prejudice an upcoming murder trial. He changed his name to David Jones, which at least it wasn't Sidney Meyer. And again, he said he was finished with crime. But he surfaced in Cairns, and in April 2001, he was charged with theft, unlawful use of a motor vehicle, and possessing sawn-off guns. For reasons that were never quite explained, he had driven a stolen car from Victoria with a plan to steal an unoccupied yacht. In the car, police found flippers, a boogie board, paint, navigation maps, how-to-sail books, and tools. He also had two large knives, a sawn-off shotgun and rifle, and an extendable baton. He later told police he needed the weapons to protect himself from pirates. He said he was going to steal a yacht and sail to the Philippines. 
Police said that while he was being interviewed in 1977, he boasted that in his next kidnapping, he would take a yacht and start dumping his hostages overboard one by one until the ransom was paid. It's worth noting that despite the fact Eastwood's crimes were farcical and ended in his capture, that the people that he kidnapped were terribly traumatised by these events. I've tracked down some of them in recent years and almost all of them are still quite frightened of him and of what happened to them, what might have happened to them, and are quite anxious not to be identified or to be identified about where they live because they fear that even though Edwin John Eastwood is now in his late 60s, that sometime he might step out of the woodwork again and cause them some harm. The man who so bravely escaped from the camp and called the police still lives with the memories and the nightmares about this event. And every time the dog barks or the wind rattles the windows of his house, he's worried that it might be Edwin Eastwood come to get him because this ordeal of being terrified for many, many, many hours for a day and a night has burnt itself into his memory and he can't ever really let it go. One of the other men who was kidnapped at Warreen, one of the other truck drivers, was a young man in his 20s. I found his mother and she told me that he died in his 30s. She said it aged him 10 years overnight and that he got cancer in his 30s and died and she fears that it was the ordeal of thinking that he would die violently that made him die of cancer as a young man. So these are the scars left by violent crime. Warner Brothers wanted to even trim Dirty Harry down more. For instance, they wanted to remove the Dr. Steve scene where Dirty Harry wants to get the buckshot out of his leg. And so there's that short scene with the medic. Here's what Don Siegel recalls. Finding ourselves with time to spare, we had a small room in the homicide squad quarters dressed as a hospital emergency room. Having no time to cast the role of the black intern, we hired out our second assistant director, Charles Washburn, who had no previous acting experience. Several of the top executives at Warner Brothers insisted on omitting the scene. I thought they were dead wrong in not allowing me to shoot it. For one thing, the script was not long. Clint told these meddlers that they didn't know how taut and tight I would shoot the rest of the film. But the most important reason was to show our audience that Harry was no bigot. Why didn't Scorpio buy his gun from the guy that beat him up? <laughs> Maybe he couldn't, uh, he didn't want to turn up to hospital, uh, be admitted to emergency with it, with it on him, but um, you'd think the old-fashioned leg-breaker, um, every-penny's-worth guy, he could give him a gun. Surely he's, he's hooked up. Or maybe it's just uh, because it's a great funny scene and just showing how demented Scorpio is and that he does every crime. (laughs) 
both Harry and Scorpio wear woolen pullovers? Scorpio's more of a cardigan, but... Mmm, they even like to dress the same. Dirty Harry is a menace. We see that over the entire arc of the series. In the Deadpool, he pulls his gun out on some innocent autograph seekers, for Christ's sake. He almost kills them. Um, and then that's it from me. So, I guess that's it. R.I.P. Dirty Harry, Minute. Hey, this is Todd with Men of the Apes. Just dropping in and giving my congratulations, my kudos, my everything I can to another team that's done a great job with breaking down the movies minute by minute. And I had the pleasure of being on as a guest and talking about how the Dirty Harry films have, you know, not only probably made their splash initially, but then had their, their ripple that continues on through time. And I, as I, I listen to the episodes and as I break down on my own podcast, Men of the Apes, I'm brought in mind of, it seems like the films of that era when they would get into action, that oftentimes the action really was what was expected. And they didn't even take the action moment sometimes to make characterizations to give the character something that defined them in those moments. Uh, we, we experience that with Men of the Apes all the time. You know, uh, those films are very problematic when it comes to the idea that it's just, let's get a monkey on the run and, and put them in precarious situations. And we don't have it really give them anything that changes them. The, the one thing I do, I do want to say when, when you've got things like that, that's interesting is I do think it helped to evolve this type of film. I think that, you know, we're about to step into the, the newer type movies and we're going to see things like that, that there's action and things happen and characters change. I think that, you know, you go and look at even a film like John wick, I think has its heavy influences from things like the dirty Harry films. I don't think there's any question that that kind of loner, uh, maybe, you know, instead of you have an assassin here and a cop there, but still that loner who has something, but now, we see filmmakers taking those chances and and really expanding their characters and, and making them interesting. And and I don't think I would have even had that understanding if it's not for what the, the team with Dirty Harry Men has done. I think that's allowed a lot of us to look in. So, again, kudos to you guys. I, I am envious of you that you're at the end. I am in awe of you that you're at the end. And hats off to you. Great job. I'm sure everyone else shares in that. So everybody take care. I hope, hopefully you'll go, go latch onto something else and maybe you'll launch another movies by minute. And so I'll be there as a fan. I'm kind of glad that Clint hung this one up after that, because it feels like he's lost interest in this kind of thing by the time he's doing it. And when he did do movies that were similar after this, uh, they felt similarly um, uninspired, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the cop blood work, what's blood the other? work, true crime stuff like that. Just not really. It's not really what he wants to be doing. I guess not, his heart's not in it. Blood work feels like a TV movie, you know. It's just by this point, you know, it's he's his heart's not in it anymore. The bad is outweighing the good. He's yeah. worked way past retirement age, and um, unfortunately, that's what you get. I mean, it's the same thing with Stallone, Jackie Chan. Lots of action stars. Bronson was really hurting his career rep. 
continuing to do vigilante movies when he's got dentures and stuff yeah. working for Canon Films. You know, yeah. they wear out their welcome. And you forget how good those early movies were. Like it, it really damages the, you know, the impression or reputation of the old stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know how tough it is to say to people, hey, look, no, Bronson's really good and Farewell Friend. He's really good and Someone Behind the Door and, and all these movies. They don't know what the hell you're talking about. They're used to Bronson. He, uh, Jim Carrey is Bronson. In the right. Hey, pun scum. <laughs> well, what's also problematic about all that stuff is like all it's, all those movies you cited, like the people that are heralding Death Wish 3, like they're never going to watch Someone Behind the Door. They're never going to watch uh, – uh, what is it? A uh, uh, writer on the rain. Mm. Yeah, you know that would be kind of dull for them. But you know, it. Uh, well, the they're watching really did a damage to Bronson. Yeah, they're do- they're watching the canon, the Death Wish three for the lulls. You know, they're watching it to, for the silly. Stuff. Yeah, they're watching the Give Me the Money, Bronson. <laughs> hey, just pay me. Come on, I don't care. Yeah. Michael Winner, where's the check? Yeah, Kinjite, what the hell is a Kinjite? I'll do it. You gonna pay me that much? Good. Alex Winter, are you gonna talk shit about me in a documentary several decades from now? <laughs> then you'd asked about Sonderlock's character, and so right. when I when I, I I cheated a little bit when I thought of Nathan Fillion, I immediately thought of and I don't know if you've seen Firefly, but I thought of Summer Glau, also from Firefly. Uh, Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles and stuff. She, she plays a character on Firefly who is um, sort of mentally fascinating throughout the whole thing. But there's okay. always a there's a surprise edge underneath. And maybe that's a bit too on the nose. But um, you could I could see her being sort of having that kind of wide-eyed look. But, uh, but she probably wouldn't shoot the attackers. She would find clever ways to sort of beat them to death. Um, okay. And for uh, uh, Pat Hingle's character, um, came up with the guy. I, I had to look up his name. I knew him from from a, a number of uh, series, but uh, getting Kevin Chapman. So it was a show called Person of Interest, uh, and he played a character named Fusco, who was the he was the sort of the rumpled, tired, um, you know, war weary, long suffering uh, detective in that, and I could easily see that translating to the chief of police. And now he plays almost the same character in a Kevin Bacon drama called that uh, takes place in Boston called City on a Hill. And uh, but I I always forget that Pat Hingle is in this, and I see him, I think, oh, that's 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 great. I always get a kick out of seeing him, but I I think of him as you know nothing but Commissioner Gordon in uh, in uh, Batman uh, eighty nine, and I think Batman Returns, and that whole thing at the end of Batman and says, well, how do we contact him? He gave us a signal. <laughs> Turns the lights on and there's the bat signal. He uh, starred with Clint earlier in his career in Hang 'em High. And uh, I forget how that ends, but I think it's like Harry, uh, sorry, Clint's character quits in disgust and says goodbye. Uh, in a similar way, maybe. Like, come back, come back. Well... I had in my mind a different comedy a- angle for Pat Hingle. I thought it could be, I don't know if you've seen Superstore, you know, um, Mark McKinney. <laughs> oh, oh, wow, yeah, yeah. A bit over the top like that, yeah. Now, is that the same Mark McKinney from The Kids in the Hall? Am That's it, yes. Yes. Yes, oh, as he's matured a- into a bit of an older man, yeah. Right. Oh, I dearly love The Kids in the Hall, too.
there might also be other characters to compare um, Harry Callahan to. I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of police force based movies, like science fiction movies. Like I know RoboCop and Dread are the more obvious ones, mm-hmm. um, but RoboCop could be one of those. Yeah, I think RoboCop fits there because the system well. there is also broken in a different way. Mm-hmm. And RoboCop is trying to do the righteous thing, and then Dread also thinks that his system is righteous throughout. And then he's like, "Oh wait, no, it's not." Um, I'd have to rewatch Dread again, but there are, there are some things in there as well. You can You'd compare have to rewatch those... Judge Dread, not Dread. Judge Dread, sorry. <laughs> and probably that that would probably be a better character makeup of yeah. what he is. The Stallone one, not yeah, not the Carl Urban one. Um, yeah. I haven't seen that one in a while. Too. Carl Rowan, great, but great it's movie. Just, it's just Love great. It. But I'm just saying, specifically, the Stallone one. Millions of people crowded into a few megacities where roving bands of street savages created violence the justice system could not control. Law as we know it collapsed. From the decay rose a new order, a society ruled by a new elite force. A force with the power to dispense both justice and punishment. They were the police, jury, and executioner all in one. They were the judges. You know, I never understood that. Why did you judge me? Why did you judge me? You killed innocent people. The means to an end. You started a massacre. I caused the revolution. You betrayed the law. When are you going to stop being a goddamn slave and grow up? I also watched Judge Dredd, the 95 one, with Sylvester Stallone. And there were, of course, always parallels to be seen with Dirty Harry. I thought it was funny. One of the lines was, he goes, emotions ought to be a law against them. I thought of Dirty Harry there. (laughs) And it was funny that you get 20 years for resisting arrest, whereas property damage was two years. I think Harry would get behind that. It's worse, you know, that someone obstructs justice sometimes than doing something a bit petty. It was funny Dredd gave his boss shit for being always at the academy wiping the cadets' asses rather than being back on the streets. Um, And Dredd gets punished by having to teach ethics at the academy, (laughs) which sort of reminded me of Harry in The Enforcer, where he has to, um, in personnel, he has to uh, review these new potential recruits. Um, Dredd, of course, won't apologize for the law and how he has to enforce it diligently without deviation. And in this perfect society, the law is identical to the moral law. And so Dredd says, you know, you put order into chaos, sir. And they're walking past a Statue of Liberty, uh, the justice figure, um, the woman with the scales and and Max van Sydow, rest in peace, says, Lady Justice, we should never have taken out of her hands. And uh, Harry would probably think, yeah, if we can. If we have all this power, sure, I, I you can trust me to um, you can trust me to see who needs to be punished and carry it on. I'm I'm that lady justice. 
um, just in sexier clothes. And of course, the rogue cop that really, if the movie was done better, would really psychologically challenge Dredd into what he believes about justice. You know, the bad guys saying, we can be gods, you know, we can we can be gods and everyone else is just human. And Dredd's, instead of saying, I'm afraid you've misjudged me, he says, I'm a street judge. That's all he is. Um, but he probably likes how the bad guys calling all the judges brainwashed morons. Hello, listeners. It's Redmond here. Um, I've been asked by John to um, wax lyrically about the comparisons between Dirty Harry, Scorpio, and other um, crime fighter and or villain tropes and types in popular culture. Now, John asked me to have a look at, you know, what is the comparison between Batman and Dirty Harry, for example, both, you know, crime fighters, as it were, albeit one legitimately, Dirty Harry, and the other illegitimately through his own uh, network and abilities and organisation, namely Batman and his own, you know, backstory. I, I think a better person for readers at home, sorry, listeners at home to go look at would be Judge Dredd. Um, by John John Wagner, there is an excellent um, crossover comic book between Judge Dredd and Batman, and which came out in 1991. That was by Alan Grant, John Wagner, and the artwork was done by Stephen uh, Bisley, who is a fabulous uh, comic artist who I probably I believe has done a lot of work for fantasy board games, including Mutant Chronicles and the Warhammer 40,000 series um, has done some fabulous artwork on those, on those projects. I would say, look at those, look at those examples. Dread actually cannot stand Batman. He makes a point of saying, I don't like, I don't like masked vigilantes and I don't like masked vigilantes running around with utility belts. So Dread has to arrest Batman, not without, not without struggle, but the two come to some kind of, you know, accord in trying to, um, arrest Scarecrow back in Gotham, Gotham City, as as somehow through the magic of comic book storytelling, um, there's a bit of a transdimensional crossover between the two worlds of Gotham City and in the in the 20th century and Mega City One in the 22nd, 23rd century. So somehow that happens, and somehow Dread gets involved. Dread and Judge Anderson gets involved um, with that to assist to assist Batman in his in his uh, crime fighting efforts. But the two definitely don't like each other, um, and 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 it more stems from from Dredd's uh, point of view. Judge Anderson, she's like I said, a bit more level-headed, much more humanising, empathetic character, if you like. I, I, my understanding is in the in the Judge Dredd uh, genus, she has been relatively new in the job, so she may not have, you know, developed that that hardiness that Dredd has in experiencing such characters as uh, Mean Mean Machine Angel, who's uh, basically a psychotic. Now, you see Judge Dredd, you know, starting in 1977 as a, you know, short comic strip for 2018 and eventually having crossovers and, and own projects um, with DC DC Comics and also several several films. Judge Dredd, to me, seems to be very similar to, Har- to Dirty Harry, um, Harry Callahan, quite literally donning the role as a city judge being someone who can uh, dispense dispense justice as as he sees fit. Now, 
that's not to say that that is necessarily necessarily the right thing to do. But to me, Dirty Harry seems very similar to Judge Dredd. He would dispense said justice, and namely, a bullet to the head of any criminal um, given given the chance. And um, I think viewers might listeners might want to go have a have a look at Judge Dredd. They both seem to be on screen very grim characters. Now, we don't know huge amounts of his backstory, only to know that he's had his own life events uh, that have affected his own worldview. But I suppose when you're working at, working in a job like being a city judge in a future dystopian society where um, you're up against quote-unquote criminals, but also quote-unquote um, other beings with mysterious and or augmented um, powers seemingly run, running amok that would probably make anyone quite grim and quite stony-faced in surviving said world. Um, I would note that Judge uh, Joe Dredd is his name has some interesting has one interesting character uh, as a as a quote unquote sidekick if you will, who I think is quite an interesting humanizing character, which is Judge Anderson, who possesses psychic abilities and often she's able to kind of temper Joe Dredd out a little bit by virtue of the fact that she can read minds and get to the bottom of um, the motivations of, of people, but also of people that are that are under suspicion and under under review. I can hear a red-winged blackbird peeping outside. Yeah. Peep, peep. Um, this is probably a simple physics question, or, or I could answer myself, but is, it, is flying over hilly terrain like San Francisco a lot more difficult than, say, somewhere flat, I'm assuming, like... Like I don't know, Wisconsin or something? <laughs> Wisconsin, yeah. Yes. It it absolutely can be. Um and uh and it's it if you think about uh you know, when you're flying an airplane, you're moving through the mass of air and uh, when you look at you know, look at hills and just imagine what the wind is doing, if there if there is wind, um, you know, wind will roll up sort of one side of the mountain and then um you can almost think of it like a uh, like a wave, like a wave of water. So imagine a wave rolling in and hitting a rock. It sort of goes smoothly up the front of it. When then it gets to the top, it just sort of dissipates and sort of tumbles and things. Well, air will do that same thing on a mountain, for example. So if you're on the, if it's windy and you're flying near hills or near mountains, uh, if you're on the uh, on the leeward side, um, you can get, actually get some some very very violent air in there. So it can be everything from just, you know pretty unpleasant turbulence to something that actually then becomes, you know, dangerous either structurally or for keeping control of the airplane. So it is very much something you have to pay attention to. Um, it, it's not always the case, but it can, it can certainly be very bumpy. The other thing is that when we're flying in particular, flying smaller general aviation airplanes, we are yeah. always, always, always thinking about what we're going to do and where we're going to go if the engine quits. Right. And, you know, flying over nice flat land with lots of farm fields and long straight highways and things like that brings a lot more comfort. Whereas flying through, you know, I used to, uh, when I lived in the Seattle area, I used to fly back and forth through the mountain passes quite a bit. And you have, you just find yourself paying extra close attention because you have far fewer options if something does go wrong. I can understand why there'd be a mandatory two two people in a helicopter if they're going over the gentle hills of North Beach or or in San Francisco. I think I've got a lot more respect now for the helicopter boys that they actually managed to find Scorpio relatively 
quickly and it was the police on the ground that let him slip through. Right, yeah, but they had the helicopter guys found them. And then, um, of course, you can't talk about police helicopters without at least mentioning Blue Thunder. Another uh, another one from 83, <laughs> if I remember. But, uh, and you mentioned, yeah, having having two guys, generally speaking, you would you would have at least two people and, and one's one's an observer, you know, and the yeah, other's a pilot. If, if you remember Blue Thunder, uh, Jaffo, just another, you know, your word here, observer. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, our meeting's over. Oh, it has to be, you have to pay to have long ones. Yeah, I can see it all. Oh, I can see that you stole this from a torrent site. Uh, yes, I can. I'm seeing Jim Carrey gyrating feverishly. And and I don't like the song Kokomo. <laughs> Oop, is Brian with us? Oh, good. Oh, I can see his name. Yeah, yeah. He's still trying to connect. Hmm. Are you with us, Brian? Hello? He says it's the most underrated movie of all time. I don't know that I buy that, but it was a good movie, and it it doesn't get the props that it it deserves. Hey guys. Hello, hello. How's it going? Yeah, I'm trying. Yeah, I'm trying to see somebody to get me, you know, take over for me. So you probably hear talking. Whenever I can, I'll just jump in. I am just moving my mic just a bit, and then making sure my water is at the ready. One last throat clear. All right. Okay, okay. You're very loud on my end, but that's okay. Yeah, one of my friends puts that movie in his top five. He absolutely loves The Rocketeer. Uh, Wisconsin. So just about the middle of the country. And sorry, how about you? Where, Where in Australia are you? Cheese and cows. Um, my part of Wisconsin is famous for aviation. But we we host the uh, we host the biggest uh, aviation event in the world here every summer. So we get to about ten to twelve thousand airplanes, and about five hundred thousand people come come to the sleepy little town where I live. Uh, it's it's a uh, membership organization. It's where I work. It's called the Experimental Aircraft Association, and it's technically our annual membership convention, but it's just turned into a into a big thing. About every two or three years, uh, uh, a group of Australians will uh, charter a Qantas 747 and uh, and fly that in, and that's always a big deal. We get the 747 on display, and and you know a bunch of. Uh, a bunch of really enthusiastic and excited Aussies uh, camping in our campground and things. We love it. Well, you know, what's funny is here, you know, your, sort of your average American doesn't even get that far. They just uh, they just assume it's not an acronym and they want to spell it Q-U-A-N-T-A-S. So, so, uh, so at least you've got sort of Queensland and Northern Territories uh, aerial service, right? I was just going to say, I find the most the most emotionally moving, rather than like you know cinematically or cerebrally moving, end is just Paths of Glory when the, that German girl's singing the old Hussar song. Mm-hmm. I, reckon, I reckon that's Kubrick's. Yeah, my most sentimental ending. I, I well up when I watch that more than I do. I think any other one. Yeah, I think that. Well, yeah. it's not my my quite nice. quite nice. It's a very good Kubrick film. Um, yeah, I feel like he kind of 
he kind of well i have a, a view of of, of uh, english directors and i consider him an english director because he lived there from the 60s on um and i i just feel like they always appreciate mechanisms more than they appreciate the actors and so the, there's always a coldness to the other films like i feel like that about ridley scott as well these films have this kind of very cerebral coldness to them that's hard to oh black hawk down is that about marines anyway um the uh no <laughs> okay <laughs> so the uh um i just feel like yeah there, there's like a there's like a coldness to their movies that i find very off-putting so uh, i'm always kind of reserved in my pe- uh, feeling about the movies burt reynolds would burt reynolds get a I think Burt Reynolds was trying to do like what did he do? Heat. Maybe that was probably early '80s. City Heat. He was. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> I oh. wanted to like that more than uh more than I did. <laughs> I pretend I like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it should have been a should have been epic. <laughs> Both the Deadpool and City Heat were uh, Eastwood like his starring movies where he acted in. They were his two worst performing movies of the '80s. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, which were the worst performing, sorry? Uh, City Heat and this, the Deadpool. Okay, okay. Wow. Hm. As, as we've discussed before, though, Blurt Reynolds apparently around the world wasn't really a box office draw after the late 70s. Okay, um, okay. Yeah. I'm not surprised. He should have stuck the Cannonball Run, you know, I think, that, I think that's what kind of spoiled his... Uh... Man, I remember going to see Hooper in the theater as a kid that... Uh... That was just the best. I like thing. that one, but yeah, I, I like that one for sure. But I don't, I don't see that as like a blockbuster movie. I, I mean, for all I know, it did well. But I think it was, I think it did really well. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's just kind of like that point in his career. I think those movies are more like they're more like. Uh, it's kind of like watching 60s movies like Casino Royale, where you're like, man, these actors are having fun. They're having way more fun yeah. than the audience. That's the problem oh, yeah. with this movie. Well, yeah, like when he was doing like Smoking a Bandit and all those, he uh, like Hell Needham was like mm-hmm, yeah. living in living in Burt Reynolds' uh, uh, second house there, you know, his, his uh, pool house. Okay, and they and they were like, hey, let's do a movie. <laughs> hey, we had fun doing this first one. Let's do another yeah, one, yeah. you know, like and let's do another and let's do another, you know, because even even Cannibal Run references. Hey, we should do a Black Trans Am. Nah, it's been done. He, uh, I can't think of the word now, but he's kind of spoiled his, like he was, you know, when you think of Deliverance and stuff like that, where he's like really delivering as an actor. And then you get to those films where he's just like, there, he's just kind of like a passenger on this fun, fun trip. You're just kind of, well, you can kind of see how he spoiled the brand. Yeah. He's he's not acting anymore. He's just playing. He's having fun. Yeah. 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 It was yeah, it was it was a different kind of career. And I, I know he tried to get back into doing some of these action films before he went to TV, and they I just I personally don't think they were that great. And I like Burt Reynolds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's another ten minutes, okay, Dave? I'll just wrap it up with things. Oh no, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm. I'm a, I'm a free man. I'm a free man. I'm a free man. <laughs> Big fan of that. <laughs> Another great Australian actor who couldn't get work here, so had to go overseas to the old country. Leo McKern. Oh, was he? Is he really? Uh, I didn't know he was from Australia. Yes, of course he is. Yes. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Lived, when you lived there forty years, you don't know. Good old Rumpel of the Bailey. Yeah. 
Yeah, I loved it. He I came back it. home in the 80s to do a movie, um, hmm. Coming Home or something, yeah. He was in this really interesting science fiction film that where the earth, the sun is getting closer and closer to the earth and everything's getting it's getting really hot. Twilight Zone? It's not a Twilight Zone. No, it's a movie. It's like a British film. And uh, yeah, it's um, I can't remember what it's called now. I'd have to look at his filmography to like, pick it out. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I'm back, cool du- dudes. Can you hear me? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not a cool dude, but I can still hear you. What's a police song born in the 50s? You know, born, you were born in the 60s. So you're I very was, cool, man. I was born in the 60s, yes. 1966, the best year for music. Yeah, a quick on while he's away, Revolver. Yep, Pet hey, Sounds. Joe Single, Pet Sounds, of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Watershed Year. That was the only, only year the Beach Boys had one album, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yes, yes. That's when the wheels started falling off the bus. Sure, um, sure, sure. I understand. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> Very can nice. you do a Californian accent? Like, can... um, well, essentially, I was born in California, and I was, but I, I, in fact, I lived in uh, until I was eight years old, just south of San Francisco. So a lot of these, a lot of the Harry films, that's familiar territory for me as a little kid, but. Moving from from there and then moving sort of up the West Coast to Washington, um, I pay attention to dialect. I pay attention to accents a lot, and it's it's all really quite neutral uh, up and down the whole West Coast. It's not really until you get into Southern California, you get more of the you know more of this sort of the surfer dude, and it's like oh, it was on the five, and and it's like traffic was just like crazy <laughs> and whatever. That's when you start to get you start to get that. The further north you go from from San Francisco up through Seattle, it's it really does become sort of quite neutral. Okay. And, and all I know about Australian accents uh, comes from Monty Python. Right, so. Bruce. Good day, Bruce. <laughs> so. Well, he 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 married an Australian for a time, didn't he? Eric Idle, I think. Was yeah, that I think he, he did all those Australian. I think shows? he did. But uh, I always think about uh, like the Australian philosopher's song and uh, <laughs> the Australian wines, you know, fine wine, which really opens up the sluices at both ends, you know, that kind of thing. See, so, you did you did the word fine and ends very good. That was very good. Well, thank you very much. It's ends, yeah. you know, you get it's it gets a bit pinched as you push it to the front of your mouth. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's easier to do women's voices. But like you know that sort of valley girl thing yeah <laughs> yeah there you go yeah uh, like oh my god eh? <laughs> yeah it's probably easier like to do like a southern drawl than it is to do yeah. like a to sort of a flat american accent where you it's the, yeah. yeah the problem with when, when like a, a non-american does a southern drawl they all think it's alabama you know it's yeah, just like yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's right, odd yeah. it's like man <laughs> it's like the, yeah they're not gonna do a texas or like yeah they're not gonna yeah, be it, it could be bad sometimes mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. Walt Murray has a great Georgian accent, doesn't he? You know, Brian? Walt Murray? Is it like... Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's so nice. Well, it's funny because when I listen to that, you know, I'm been, they're doing, we're doing a group project right now, and he's, um, he, you know, I'm listening to their minutes, and, and, I, and I, I hear a lot of Perry, who was my co-host you know, from Texas, and even though, you know, one's from Texas, one's from Georgia, I'm like, man, I'm picking up a lot of the mannerisms that are the same because, you know, I'm from up, you know, I'm from New York, I'm up up north, and these, you know, these are 
even though two different states and they're not exactly close together, they got that same kind of southern kind of dialect and it's very funny, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You better off in the mission. Now oh, what? What's that? What's that? I don't know what that is. Hang on. Do I want to do kind of American or? This is like really weird for you to hear. Uh, well, uh, there was one line. Uh, I curved my words a little too much in American accent, but I'm going to try an American accent, maybe. Be better off in the mission, responded Harry. I can look in on you from time to time. Think you got everything? Probably healthier than Linguini. Yeah, don't, probably don't use my voices. I was just felt like I should do something and I instantly regretted that. Uh, but thanks for inviting me on to do this. Been good fun and lovely to come back to, to this. Don't know why you invited me back when this is a level of professionality, but I, I really appreciate it. It's great fun. And sorry for the delay. I'll send this over to you right now. You're only dim, you're a punk. And a pretty second-rate punk at that. Drama! <laughs> I don't know why you keep fading out really low. I can barely hear you now. Uh, what about now? That's a little better. Yeah, it's weird, I don't right, know. One second. Sorry, I had to deal with something real quick. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> I'm I'm a father too, although my daughters are in their twenties now. So yeah, I'll be dealing with it when we're done too. <laughs> but, but I had to had to go referee for a minute. Yeah, yeah, I I hear you though. Well, I I intentionally had my daughters three years apart. Not that I intentionally had daughters, but I intentionally had my kids three years apart because I felt like they would get along better. But maybe I, maybe I was wrong. <laughs> right, 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 right. They get along really well. Just another few minutes, guys. I'll be back. Just another yeah, few minutes. No Hang problem. On. No, no you're problem. fine. You're fine. Actually, give me uh, half a second too, Dave. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, not a problem. Go ahead. Put, Put one, one to bed, bed and get, get the, the other. other. Yeah, yeah. One second. Uh, Jay left for a second. He might have put it on mute. Ah, okay. We're like, uh oh. We drove him off with our political talk. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> I'm offended. This has been a great conversation, dude. Fucking hell, two hours forty. Yeah, long. I, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, there's a little probably clean up there to get the time down, but yeah, we we talked a lot. Yeah. Come on, Zoom. I know, right? Why aren't we using Discord? Yeah, David, I, I hear you just fine. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah, and most, I would say 80% of the time I'm hearing John just fine. And then it's just every once in a while. Um, it's as if we're in North America and he's on the other side of the world. Right. All right, well, hey guys, uh, uh, David, it was really nice meeting you, John. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, great. Yeah. No, it was a pleasure, guys. I'm sorry I took you so long. I was expecting no. Dave and uh, Brian. I was ex- almost expecting to start the commentary today, but uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I like to talk too much. You know this. You know uh, Sneaky uh, Dragon. That's uh, so I'll never stop. All right. <laughs> <laughs>
Check, 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 check. All right. Well, don't be strange, you guys. Thank you so much for my silly business. Thank you so much. Yeah. Hey, thanks again. No, it was my pleasure. <laughs> thanks, David. No, thanks no to problem. Thanks your family for putting up with it. Okay, Bye. no problem. Take Bye, care. Guys. Bye, guys. God damn it, fucking cat. What is this asinine police crap? This is illegal arrest, man. This is unconstitutional, and you damn well know it. Well, this whole damn place is coming down, you know that? You pigs are going to be out of work, but don't worry about it. We'll put you on welfare. That's all your sinking job is anyway. Come on, pig. Shoot me. Pull your piece and blow me up right here. What's the matter? No guts? Chicken? Huh? Oh! Guts! What happened? He bumped into a chair. Chair? And most certainly, it's this knowledge, this instinct for what the average cinema-goer wants to see that has brought Eastwood to his present position as one of the most potent filmmakers around. The spaghetti westerns are behind him now, and he won't make another Dirty Harry. So what the future holds could be interesting. Some people get so obsessed with Stallone some people like Bruce Willis more John McTiernan is the best Some people go in for Batman Even drool over Michael Bay But I take Harry Callahan any day Original is the best. Every minute has its special charm. I did a podcast so I can attend. I know a crowd who only live for Chris Nolan. Their faces always seem so pale. Others swear by Marvel dichotomies for them. Architects never fail But I like my heroes Problematic On the Bechdel test They're doomed to fail I like Harry Callahan Like every 70s male SPD <laughs>